We're going to study God's Word together, so if you open your Bible to the New Testament book of Jude, we're starting a new series this morning, so if you want to get there, the quick way to get there is turn to the end of the book, Revelation, and then hang a left, and Jude is the one-page book right before the book of Revelation at the end of your Bible. Let me just welcome any of uh, you who are guests this morning. It's a joy to have you here, and if you're new here, you're new back maybe from uh, COVID-19, and this is your first time gathering with us, uh, we're thankful that, uh, that you're here this morning. We're going to really spend just a few weeks here in this short book. It's just one chapter, the book of Jude, and, and dive into this together. It was a great um, uh, pastor and proclaimer of the truth. Matter of fact, he's a founder of a ministry called Proclamation Trust. His name is Dick Lucas. He's 95 years old. He's been in it for a long time, still serving Jesus training ministers in how to faithfully exposit the Word of God. And Dick Lucas said this, he said, it's often true that the most neglected books in the Bible are some of the ones most needed for our world today. And Dick Lucas surmises that there's no book in the New Testament more neglected than the book of Jude. And then he argues for the way in which Jude is so relevant for our modern times. And I think we're going to see some of the ways in which maybe, uh, maybe some of the uh, motivations pastors have for kind of, you know, hitting a hard pass on the book of Jude. We'll see that a little bit more next week when we get into the thick of it in Jude starting in verse 4. But um, I hope that this will provide much encouragement for us. And I, I hope that it's situated in an intentional way. So my hope is setting this study of Jude right behind Jonah is going to be like, um, like installing two massive bookends on the Church of Brook Hills that we have Jonah calling us under divine inspiration to live compassionately on mission for the glory of Jesus. And then we have this other bookend holding us up that's saying, also live courageously, also live convictionally, confessionally for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's not one or the other, it's both that enables God's people to live faithfully for him today. So if you'd follow along, I hope you're in Jude. I'm going to read just the first few verses just to get us oriented to this book, and then we'll dive in a little bit more to the uh, passage next week. Beginning in verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. So if you've got your notes there, we're going to kind of start by just getting oriented to Jude's letter together. So this was written by Jude. And that's a little bit of a trick question because some of the books in the New Testament are named Timothy and it's not written by Timothy. But in this particular case, it's written by Jude. You see that right there in the first verse. And if we dig a little bit into the, the archives and dig into places like Mark chapter 6 and Matthew 13 and other places, you find out who this guy Jude was. He had rather well-known parents. A carpenter by the name of Joseph was his dad and his mom was a woman named Mary. Um, Jesus, as you know, 
and as is a, a matter of the Christian confession, the Christian creed. Jesus was born of a virgin. Um, but that didn't mean that Joseph and Mary didn't have kids after Jesus came on the scene, and, and clearly they did have children. One was, was named James, and he writes the New Testament book that bears his name, the book of James. Another of Jesus' brothers, half-brothers, is Jude, who writes the book of Jude, which means that Jude probably shared a bunk bed with Jesus Christ. Jude probably didn't on the first day that he, you know, growing up and playing around the gym and playing around the house, right? He didn't call Jesus Lord and Savior. He called him Bubby, right? It was just, this was his familial relationship. That's Jude, and it seems very likely that Jude and James and many of Jesus' immediate family members did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, the eternal Son of God became man. They didn't believe, they didn't buy it until after the resurrection, when it says that, that Jesus appeared to James and appeared to his brother James. Perhaps Jude, there was an appearance there as well, but one way or another, Jude found out Jesus was alive after he had been crucified. And from that moment on, James is all in, Jude is all in, and not unlike his brother James, interesting thing about, if you read the book of James, you find out there's a tone about these two brothers. They're both very direct. They're both very candid. They, they don't pull punches. They don't beat around the bush. They just come straight up the middle and tell you what's going on, right? And they point out the errors, and they say, let's turn away from these errors. His writing style, Jude's writing style, like James's writing style, is about, uh, it's about as subtle as a flying mallet, right? It, this, is, this is a train coming through, and you're not going to miss the point. He's not Captain Nuance. He's going to be very, very straightforward and very clear. And here's a point for us to take away. For Jude, a mind hungry for truth and a heart eager for obedience are baseline Christian discipleship. And we need books like Jude in every age because the church, um, the church is tempted in every age to accommodate the gospel to the culture. And Jude is one of those guys in the New Testament who says, that's, that's not our move. That's, that's not the way forward. That's not the way to see the gospel advance. We've got to be super clear about the gospel, about even the offense of the gospel, about who Jesus is and what it means to serve him faithfully and follow him as king and as Lord. This book is calling the church and has been doing so for 2,000 years as to what does it look like to faithfully bear witness to Jesus Christ as king and Lord. So what's the basis of a life of Christian courage? What truths clear the fog of today's trendy but Christless spirituality? And there is a trendy and Christless spirituality that's alive and well in our world. Um, even that passes for Christianity, that basically messages that are self-help messages dressed up in Bible verses, where they do an end run around Jesus and his cross to get straight to God. In effect, that's the feel that you have. That's not what you get anywhere from Jude. Jude is here to clear the air. Jude is here to be crystal clear. He's here to tell us not all the people who profess to follow Jesus have Jesus. A lot of them, Jude says, are imposters, and we need to be aware of imposters, wolves, hidden reefs among us, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, right, that, that are dead. They look like they're alive on the outside, but they actually bear no living fruit. That's Jude's message. And he's going to call the church to manifest courage and conviction 
in the proclamation of the truth. We sang, uh, when I was growing up in church, we sang um, a simple song, and it just said, be bold, be strong, for the Lord thy God is with you. And then it's saying it again, be bold, be strong. I am not afraid, I am not dismayed. Walk in faith and victory, for the Lord thy God is with thee. And, and I just thought it's a simple song, and it was kind of bebopping feel, and I enjoyed it as a kid. But I look back on it, and it's kind of like, oh, it's, it was a little bit shallow. But then, as I read through the Bible, I came to, to Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. It's like, that's, that's what inspired this, this song. Here's what Joshua 1, verse 9 says. Haven't I commanded you, be strong. Be courageous or be bold. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We, uh, don't we love stories of courage? There's something about us as human beings but also as Christians that we're wired to be inspired by stories of courage. In scripture, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and Esther, and Abigail, and all these awesome stories of courage, and David and Goliath, right, that dazzles our eyes even as children when we heard those stories. And not just stories in the Bible, but stories in Christian history. The, the, the martyrs who stood before the lions and confessed Jesus as Lord at their moment of death, even all the way up until today. So the um, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary back in the early 90s had basically given up the gospel and had abandoned its, its confession of biblical truth and Christian orthodoxy. And contrary to the best efforts of his detractors, Dr. Albert Moeller ended up being installed as the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And in 1993, for his convocation address, <laughs> he laid the groundwork. Matter of fact, when he began the convocation address, a number of the trustees stood up and walked out of the room, turned their backs on him and walked out to make a public spectacle of Dr. Moeller. And his convocation address, he laid the groundwork for the seminary to be restored to biblical fidelity, and the name of the address was, don't just do something, stand there. Something about standing, standing in the truth, standing for the truth that inspires us. You know, some of our brothers and sisters in Jesus and other parts of the world, they face direct persecution, they face severe persecution for their witness about Jesus Christ. It's dangerous for them to read the Bible. It's deadly for them to undergo Christian baptism. Martin Luther, who preached justification by faith alone on penalty of death, they said, you keep preaching that message, we're gonna find you. And he kept preaching it. And matter of fact, not only did he keep preaching it, while he was preaching it, he was humming that song that he wrote, the Battle Hymn of the Reformation, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which says this, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Courage, Christian convictional courage. What's the basis of Christian courage? Three truths that we contend for. Number one, God saves. God saves. So the ancient letters would typically begin with an identification of the sender and an identification of the recipient. That's what you see. Just look down in your text. The sender is Jude, those words, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And then you see the identification of the recipient. To those who are the called, 
loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. In other words, that's his audience. It's not just specifically to one particular local church like Ephesus or Colossae. He's writing to the universal church. That's why it's called a Catholic epistle. It's a universal letter that would have been circulated around all the churches. And he's saying, what is the church? He's saying, what is a Christian? A Christian is, according to Jude, in the first two verses, Jude establishes gospel clarity. He says, the Christian is a person who is called by God, loved by God, and kept by God. Here's the point for us to take away. Our salvation is God's work from beginning to end. You see the way that those three words encapsulate the beginning all the way to the end of the Christian life. He, God called you on the day of your conversion. On the day you believed, he called. Augustine said that was, that was how Augustine told the story of what happened to him in the fourth century AD. He, he said, you called and shouted and burst my deafness. He said, you breathed and I drew in my breath and panted for you. God calls us to himself and then he loves us eternally, right? He sets his love on us in, in Christ and then he keeps us all the way to the end. We're gonna see that once we get to the end of the book of Jude, but he already begins by talking about this keeping power of God. Here's the truth for us to take away. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you know this from the Bible. Number one, God loved you before the world began. This is worth remembering because scripture so often repeats it. If you're a Christian, God didn't start loving you when you started loving him. What, what did the apostle John say? We love him because he first loved us. His love swept us off our feet. Our love was responsive love, not initiating love. God's initiating love set everything into motion and our love responded when we saw his great love for us. We were pulled in like, like a moth to flame. We came running to Jesus. Look, if as a Christian, if all you needed were commands from God in order to get your, your life in gear, right? If, if all you need is commands about what you're supposed to do, 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 more spiritual activities and spiritual chores, that we could cut hundreds of verses out of the Bible, Old Testament, and hundreds of verses out of the New Testament that are just kind of redundant. They're just kind of feel, it feels really sweet, but just tell me what to do, right? That's not the New Testament that we have. God writes to his people so often and he tells us to convince us of his love for us. He speaks in that way. God's love doesn't make soft Christians. It makes steady Christians. That's the impact of God's love and the assurance texts that are filled up all throughout the New Testament. Here's the next truth. God called you and brought you to life through the gospel. That's the call of God. Right, I've seen... Um, we're the end of volleyball season, and a common occurrence and common thing that I see on a regular basis at volleyball games at this or that gym is I'll see the game is over, and it's time to go, and it's late, and I'll see a dad across the room, maybe many dads around the room, and they're all, we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all just trying to get home. Right, it's like we corral the family and one of the, one of the kids is over there at the concession stand and another's waiting in the line at the bathroom. Like we've been here all night. Now you gotta go to the, right? And another one found a basketball somewhere in the gym and just hoisting them from half court, right? And, and then you just see dad just desperately calling. Hey, it's time to go. 
Everybody lets go, and then and, and the call goes out, and no one responds. <laughs> yeah, welcome to my world, right? The call goes out, and nobody responds. So that is not the call that Jude is talking about here. This call that he's talking about, it accomplishes its purpose. The old school theological term is effectual calling. That is, this call transfers things, it triggers things, it makes stuff happen. This call gets things done. It move, it's a people mover. It gets people moving in his direction. A classic example is Lazarus. Jesus stands outside the tomb of Lazarus. If you or I stand outside the tomb of Lazarus and say, come forth, does Lazarus come? No, Lazarus is dead. But when Jesus <laughs> says, Lazarus, come, that's all he has to do is say one word, and here comes Lazarus. Why? Because the call has the power to revive. The call has the power to affect what it's asking for, to bring about what it's asking for. The call gets it done. If you're outside the tomb of Lazarus, unlikely as it seems, when Jesus says, come, and you're laying bets on what's going to happen next, don't bet against the power of God's voice. <laughs> It's going to do stuff that we never would have expected, surprising things. One theologian said that had Jesus stood at the cemetery and said, come and not specified Lazarus, all the graves would have opened because of the seminal power, the life-giving power of the word of God. God calls us out of darkness and we come running out of darkness. He says, let there be light in your heart and there was light in your heart. It's an awesome, awesome thing. Have you come? Have you responded to the life-giving call of God in the gospel where he looks out at a world that is broken and needy and sinful and he says, I provided, the Father says, I provided for you one heaven-sent Savior. Look to him and live. Look, and that call rings out this morning. God would say that again this morning. Come to me. Repent and believe. Find life in the Son and the Savior that I have provided. So there's call, and then the next one is this. So call, loved, and kept. God will keep your faith alive until you see Jesus face to face. So this might be new to some of you, not that it really matters, but now I'm into running. It's like a thing that I'm into now, and my wife and I, as of recently, now we both share it. So now we both have to geek out about running and we were on Herdmont's track yesterday and checking each other's times and heart rates and pace and splits and all this stuff we didn't know about like three months ago, didn't know what any of this even meant and we're still really reaching for understanding some of the definitions. But now we're running, like we run. It's a thing that we do now and it gives us a lot, a lot of joy and we have lots of conversations about it. Um, I've watched videos of, um, of runners who ran marathons. Probably some of you have seen viral videos of people who run marathons. I mean, these are top level athletes in the world and some of them cannot complete the race. Something goes wrong in their body and they, they, their legs buckle and they literally can't make it to the finish line. Well, here's the thing. When you read the New Testament as a Christian, you find out that there's this massive metaphor for the Christian life and the metaphor is there's a race. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you are running the race. You're a runner. You might not know that, but you read the New Testament. If you follow Jesus, you're running now. You are running a race that is set before us. And the finish line is your death. 
And when you ask the New Testament the question, how many of the people who follow Jesus as Lord and King, who have been justified by grace alone, how many of them are gonna make it to the finish line? The answer is all of them. Why? Not because your strength won't fail, but because he'll keep you to the end. That is such good news. And Jude is riffing on it from the very first verses of this letter. Jude doesn't begin with a command for Christian courage because the way the New Testament apostles is this. It's not just about motivating the church to obey. It's how do you motivate the church to obey? That matters as well. The way you motivate the church to obey matters greatly. Guilt and shame can be used as behavior modification tools for ministers, for parents, for disciple makers. They can be used as manipulative tools to get people moving in God's direction. But they don't produce amazed worshipers. They don't produce people who sing amazing grace from the heart. They often produce smug critics of culture. Here's the question, does the sound of our worship reveal the wonder of our salvation? Does the sound of our worship, even this morning, reveal the wonder of our salvation? The psalmist says, the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. In other words, there is a corporate praise that should be commensurate with the greatness of our salvation. It should say, yeah, I understand that there is a great salvation because look at these people's response to the mighty work of God in saving them from death. Yawning worship, detached worship, platonic worship doesn't honor God. It honors God about as much as it honors your, your grandparents on their 50th anniversary when you, when you say, you know, in this sort of tone, surprise, wow. 50 years, right? It's like, no, that doesn't really honor, that doesn't say what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to say, surprise, 50 years of faithfulness. Wow, mama, papa, that's, that's awesome, right? Well, that honors because it's commensurate to the value of the endurance of that relationship. In the same way, does our worship say, these people were saved. They were plucked from the fire snatched from the jaws of death and judgment. Look, I want to encourage you to sing louder. I mean that very, like literally, sing louder in church. And don't do it because I asked you to. Do it because you wanted to do it before I mentioned it. You wanted to do it. It was in your heart and maybe there was just an inner reluctance, but now maybe there won't be because it's appropriate for us to respond greatly to the great salvation of God. Next, number two, Jesus rules. So we have to grasp three truths to stand courageously in the cause of the gospel. God saves, and second, Jesus rules. When, when Jude introduces himself, it's amazing to me when you know who he is and you know who he was related to and who was on the bunk bed below him growing up that he doesn't name drop. Jude doesn't tell us he bears any relation to Jesus. We find it, that out because he's a brother of James, and there's only one James that you could just say his first name, and everybody would know who you're talking about, and that would be James, the brother of Jesus. So Jude is related to James. James is related to Jesus. Jude, Jude doesn't say anything about his relationship to Jesus except, I'm his slave, doulos. I'm his servant, right? I've, I've told people, some people in this room, I've told you the story of... Um, of a, a pretty noteworthy kid who played the piano in my house. 
years and years ago because he came to the birthday party of my sister because he went to school with my sister and his name was Harry Connick Jr. And Harry Connick Jr. played our piano. And now, now you all know it, right? So I've dropped the name again. I've told many people that, that story. You think that I wouldn't tell <laughs> if, if my brother was the savior of the world, raised from the dead? You think I wouldn't? I mean, I'd put that on my business card. It would be a Pastor Matt Mason, brother of King of Universe, right? There'd be some way that I would have to indicate. I shared a bed. I called him Bubby. We called Mary Mom together, right? I, I'd get the WWJD bracelet and I would get it reprinted and it would say, what would my brother do? Like I would do whatever I could to get over to you. We're related. <laughs> it's a half thing, but we're related, right? Here's what Jude says, verse one. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. What humility, what humility. Here's the point, servant or slave of Jesus Christ signified the believer's intention to follow, obey, and honor Christ above all. Here's the thing, you know, even though Jesus said to his followers, I call you friends. He, he said, somebody said, your mother, your brother, is, they're outside. He said, who's my mother and my brother? It's you guys. You're my mother and my brother and my sisters. He calls them friends. He calls them family, but they always insist on calling him Lord. They never drop that. They never get chummy with Jesus. They call him the most classic way the apostles refer to Jesus is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our king, our master. You see verse four. Let's just look at these real fast. This is, this is how Jude speaks of Jesus Christ. They deny Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. Look at verse 14. The Lord, that's that's Jesus Christ, comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment. Look at verse 17. The apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory. Jesus is Lord was the central statement of faith for the early church. It's what they said at their martyrdoms. Yesu ha kurios. Their last three words on this earth before the lions were released. Jesus is Lord. The central confessional statement of the early church was to acknowledge Jesus is different than us. He's higher than us. He's the king of the universe. He's the Lord of the world. He's above us. We serve at his pleasure. Does Jesus is Lord explain the whole of your life? Listen, that, that's what Christian baptism is all about. What do you say from the waters? What you're saying in all of your words as you share your story is, I'm not my own anymore. I belong to Christ. I belong to Jesus. I'm his now. He's calling the shots from this day forward and I wouldn't have it any other way. He is Lord, he is king. And third, so God saves, Jesus rules, and doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. When, when people became Christ followers in the book of Acts, they enrolled in school. Matter of fact, the word for disciple is mathetes, the word from which we get the word ma mathematics. It's, it's, it has to do with learning. They were learners. And what do you see? These brand new disciples, they're still wet from their baptism. 
right? They said, what must we do to be saved? They said, repent and be baptized. They said, where's the water? They dive into the water, they're baptized, and then they come just up out of the water, dripping wet from their baptism, and what does Acts chapter two say they did? They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. They're dripping wet, and they're hungry for truth. They're hungry for the word. Feed us theology. Feed us the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Tell us who he is. Tell us what he's done. The apostles taught on the nature. You read through the New Testament. What do the apostles teach? They teach on the nature and character of God. They teach on the person and work of Christ. They teach on the power and gifts of the Holy Spirit. They taught on the doctrines of grace and justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. What do the apostles teach? What was the apostles' doctrine? They taught that sin is our greatest problem. God's judgment is our greatest threat. God's son is our only rescue, and God's mission is our only option. The teaching of the apostles was crystal clear. You're not gonna miss the point. Utter clarity in the apostolic witness. The faith, this is in your notes, the faith refers to the body of apostolic teaching about Jesus Christ. It's not just referring to faith in a kind of, you know, your subjective experience of trusting God that rises and falls. No, the faith with the definite article in front of it, it's, a, it's content. It's the, the confession of the Christian church born faithfully throughout the ages. Michael Horton, an author who's really helpful and writes into this space a lot, he says this, Jesus was not revolutionary because he said we should love God and each other. Moses said that first. So did Buddha, Confucius, and countless other religious leaders we've never heard of. Madonna, Oprah, Dr. Phil, and Dalai Lama, and probably a lot of Christian leaders will tell us that the point of religion is to get us to love each other. God loves you doesn't stir the world's opposition. However, start talking about God's absolute authority holiness, Christ's substitutionary atonement, justification apart from works, the necessity of new birth, repentance, baptism, communion, and the future judgment, and the mood in the room changes considerably. That's the faith, once for all, handed to the church of Jesus Christ, handed to the saints. What does it look like for us to contend for the faith? Very briefly. The church rightly contends for the faith when, number one, God's word is king. We contend for the faith when God's word is king. When scripture speaks, God speaks. That's, that's a core confession of Christians throughout the ages, that God's word, when God's word speaks, it settles the matter. God's word is infallible. God's word is inerrant. God's word is sufficient. God's word is authoritative. God's word gives us everything we need for life and godliness, which means this, the most important way to follow God's will is to commit oneself to the study of God's word. The, the most direct route to knowing God is knowing God's word in which he introduces himself to his people. God's word is his divine self-revelation. So what do we do? If that's true, it means the business of the Christian who wants to contend for the faith, the business of the Christian is to read it to study it, to memorize it, to hide it in your heart, to learn it, to hear it preached. So God's word is king. Second, we keep the gospel clear and central. We keep the gospel clear and central. In 1923, the Princeton, the great Princeton theologian and New Testament scholar, J. Gresham Machen, 
He was contending for the faith at Princeton. He was the last of the great Princeton theologians and he ended up having to, to leave because Princeton gave over the apostolic faith and caved into theological liberalism that was coming into prominence at that time. And now nearly 100 years later, Princeton's never turned around. The essential claims of the Christian faith were lost to memory in the 1920s. But Machen was there saying, not today. Not while I'm here. I'm gonna fight. And he fought vigorously for the centrality of God's word. Here's one of the things that Machen said. The world is lying in misery. We ourselves are sinners. Men are perishing in sin every day. The gospel is the sole means of escape. Let us preach it to the world while we yet may. So desperate is the need that we have no time to engage in vain babblings. While we are discussing the exact location of the churches of Galatia, men are perishing under the curse of the law. While we are settling the date of Jesus' birth, the world is doing without its Christmas message. The essence of the gospel centers on the person and work of Jesus and what he has done. We keep the gospel clear and central. Third, we display meekness and mercy. We looked at this in depth over the study of the book of Jonah, but I'll just remind us here, some people uh, read contend for the faith as be contentious. Those two things aren't saying the same thing, but basically that's the way it comes down, is contend for the faith, cool, we'll be contentious. <laughs> That's not what faithfulness looks like. Here, here are three quick passages about what it looks like for the church of Jesus Christ to take truth into hostile territory. See if it sounds like your social media page or other media pages that you're familiar with. Here's what God's word says, 1 Timothy 2. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with, there's the word again, gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Here's another quote, Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. And then 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence. So just this is as practical as we're gonna get. When some of you are about to post a rant against the world to burn it down, um, consider these options instead. Number one, instead of posting a rant, buy a puppy. Right, so that's just one practical, not very spiritual thing, but you can actually do it. If you can't afford a puppy, come get mine. Literally, you can have him. Um, so that's one option. Number two, instead of posting a rant, pray for the people you're angry at. Here's another one. Instead of posting, write a thank you note to your small group leader. Take that time and express gratefulness for someone who's investing in your life spiritually. Maybe a Brook Hill staff person, maybe a small group uh, leader. Fourth, another option is go ahead and post, but post about something you're thankful for today. Let's out rejoice the world. Now, what if we were marked by that, that kind of spirit? But that was Jonah, so we'll keep moving. We contend for the gospel with meekness and mercy. We, next point and final point, this is very brief. We contend for the gospel in the ordinary rhythms of life. 
Uh, you know, some of us, I, I include myself in this, we've just, we've seen too many movies. You know what I mean? I, I mean, um, we discount the ordinary ways in which we contend for the faith. How do we contend for the faith? When we read the Bible, when we talk about the Bible in our homes, when we tell the stories of what God has done and we tell our kids our own testimonies, we're contending for the faith. We're transferring the faith to another generation. When we counsel each other with God's word, when we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, when we come together and gather and, and hold the confession of our hope without wavering that he who promised is faithful, when we sing ourselves deep into the gospel Sunday after Sunday, we're contending for the faith. All of that counts. All of that is doing stuff in the interior of our lives. Even though the surface of the waters doesn't move, something's happening in the depths of our souls. So before the day comes where you or I might have to stand before the lions or we might be told, you, if you confess Christ as Lord, you're going to lose your life and you're going to lose it right here. Before that day ever comes, there are going to need to be hundreds and hundreds of days for us as Christians where brothers and sisters are saying to one another what we sang in our church growing up. Be bold. Be strong. Brother, the Lord is with you. Sister, the Lord is with you wherever you go.